off to the races. Mm-hmm. It's the Do Politics Better podcast. I'm Brian Lewis. And I'm Sky David. To quote the great Ron Burgundy from The Anchorman, that escalated quickly. Oh, I thought you were going to say Shake and Bake. Uh, That wasn't that movie. (laughs) Different movie. You're thinking of Talladega Nights. I'm thinking of The Anchorman, the best movie of all movies. This week, real work began at the General Assembly, and boy, did it. It was an incredible pace. It was, and truly, most of that action came from the Senate. As somebody said to us, it's the Senate versus everybody. (laughs) Y'all should get t-shirts made. Right. I mean, usually it's the House that just starts sending over piles of bills, and all 900 got stacked up in the Senate Rules Committee last session. But man, the Senate just hit it hard this week. Yeah, proper preparation. I mean, the biggest bill of the week had to be the Parents' Bill of Rights, House Bill 755. Nerd out a little bit. Yes, it's a House bill that was originally sponsored by Representative Hugh Blackwell. It crossed over, goes over into the Senate. The Senate guts that bill, puts it in committee. And man, Sky, it was on. The Senate Republicans had a press conference about this Tuesday night during the growler. (laughs) And I think Senator Berger even said something about, I hope the people at the growler are listening to some reference to the growler. The bill was heard the next day in the Senate Education Committee. And we heard testimony from both sides, very passionate about this bill Those in favor of the bill think that there should be some transparency in public education around curriculum. They need to know what their kids are receiving as far as health care, mental health. And then opponents of the bill see it as an anti-LGBTQ bill. The bottom line here, you could get into the merits of the pros and cons. The bottom line is that this bill is headed for a veto. veto. (laughs) by Governor Cooper. That's right. On Wednesday afternoon, Governor Cooper already spoke on the bill, which is not something that happens a lot while a bill is moving through the legislative process. He didn't say, I'm going to veto this, but he essentially said it. We're going into the 2022 elections. This is how Republicans felt they won Northern Virginia in the suburbs, an area of the state that typically goes Democratic, went Republican. They feel that this was the galvanizing issue. We all know Republicans want super majorities, and the only way to get to a super majority is to go through the suburbs. You said that was the biggest news of the week, and honestly, what's crazy is that that did get a lot of the headlines, but... The Senate Republicans also dropped their Medicaid expansion bill this week, which is a big deal. That's right. You are right. Say it again louder. (laughs) Yes. After 10 years, the Senate Republicans decided, yes, we want to expand Medicaid. Senator Berger said in a press conference yesterday, no one has spoken out more against Medicaid than me. I want to meet the guy who has. And yesterday, he released the bill. That's right. Senator Kravik 
led this bill and it includes a work requirement to be eligible for that Medicaid money. It also includes all of these umbrella topics that had been talked about in that joint committee on expansion and access. And what's interesting, it includes CON reform, which is a big fight between the hospitals and standalone surgery centers. Certificate of need. Right. Yeah. And um, scope of practice for advanced nurse practitioners. Mm -hmm. And nurses in general. Yeah. So the bill got a favorable report today in the health committee, and then it got another favorable report in the finance committee immediately after. It feels as if this bill is on the fast track to get out of the Senate and over to the House. Where the speaker said, ain't going to happen. The House has always been in support of some sort of Medicaid expansion. Until last year. They weren't last year. Right, until last year. But they were Carolina Cares, Cares, Medicaid Light, that kind of stuff. So I asked a legislator, this was my question. I sent a text this morning. I was in committee. This is what I said. What is the upside of the House saying they want to wait until the fall to pass Medicaid expansion? Because we've heard that they might come back in a special session in September or October, which is kind of weird because early voting could be happening. What do Republicans in the House gain by going that route? And this is the reply I got from a legislator who is very involved on Medicaid expansion issues. He said, one. Concerns about what's in the bill. Number two, they don't have the votes yet in the House. Number three, concerns about the election. So are they going to wait until they get some polling back in the fall, see where this falls, have a special session, and then vote Medicaid? But they certainly don't want to be voting on this now, according to Speaker Moore and House Majority Leader John Bell. We'd reported a few weeks back that in that joint committee, Representative Donnie Lambeth said, hey, we're going to pick up the work of this committee after short session. We're on pause. So it may just be that it feels like the Senate went around them. We've said it before. Senate versus all (laughs) y'all. All right, so what else? I mean, those are two huge things. What else, Scott? The third huge thing is that the budget is fast-tracked. Like one of those passes you get at Disney, it's at the front of the line. Yeah, we had a meeting today with a big chair over on the house side, and he was like, man, this thing is moving so fast. That's right, and all indications are that, hey, they are trying to get out of session, and we're going to do a lot of work in a short amount of time, which you know means everything will be done well and without error. (laughs) That's right. So go ahead and put your bet now on how many pages technical corrections will be this session. It is moving fast. That's right. The big chairs began meeting on Monday, I believe, and have been meeting into later hours in the evening. They didn't even get to go to the Growler Tuesday night, many of them, because appropriations met until what, 8, 8.30? The speaker did say that the area chairs like JPS... HHS, those folks are going to meet with the big chairs. So he said to members, hey, if you're a member and you're listening, 
get your requests into your folks now because otherwise you're about to be left behind. Mm-hmm. So this week we had a bill filing deadline on Thursday. If you are filing a bill for appropriations, it had to be in Thursday at four o'clock. Things are moving so fast. I think the best thing for you to do if you're a lobbyist, if you're a legislator, special interest group, you better have the ear of a big chair because they are hearing your request right now. So with all this talk of Medicaid expansion, one person who will be in the middle of this discussion will be Health and Human Services Secretary Cody Kinsley. He sat down with Sky and I, and we had a very good conversation. The Do Politics Better podcast is supported by the North Carolina Travel Industry Association. Founded in 1955, NCTIA has a distinguished history of partnering with the North Carolina General Assembly to strengthen and preserve tourism in North Carolina. Visit nctia.travel for more information on how you can support your local tourism destination and the thousands of North Carolina jobs it creates. Department of Health and Human Services Secretary Cody Kinsley, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. Great to be here. To start us off, tell us about your job. What does the secretary do and what do you oversee? So the Department of Health and Human Services, North Carolina is actually one of very few states that has kind of a mega agency. So we have all things health and human services. We run the Medicaid program. We have public health on the human services side, social services, uh, you know, everything that wraps around people to help give them the best chance of being healthy and well here in North Carolina. So you're from Wilmington. I am. You went to Brevard. Yep. From there, you made it to Berkeley for graduate school. Can you talk about growing up in Wilmington, how you got to Brevard, well, you, and how, how you ended up in California? I mean, Asheville is like the training ground for Berkeley, maybe. Okay. Uh, All right. Okay. <laughs> so, that checks out. Uh, my, uh, um, you know, my mother would have loved for me to go to UNC Wilmington and <laughs> go from home. I, you know, a six-hour drive was, was just about right to have enough distance from mom and dad to see them, but have some independence, support in a college. Uh, and, and, and then I worked, and I stayed in Brevard for several years and worked there before going to grad school. And what did you do there? So my first job was actually working at a behavioral health care outpatient facility. Uh, and, uh, you know, we had the vision that we were going to be able to treat people from all walks of life, all income backgrounds, and that those people would be sitting in the waiting room together and experiencing because we thought mental health was foundational to health. Mm-hmm. And so that was really what started me on this path to health in Brevard, North Carolina. Some point though through that process, I realized how important the public sector is in mental health, and I got really interested in public policy. How do we make things better? That's why I went to public policy school. Picked Berkeley. Uh, got well, I should say, very lucky to have gotten in. It's the top public policy school in the country. Went there, had a fun time on the West Coast, but I will tell you that I graduated on Friday and I moved on Monday <laughs> because I am an East Coaster, and it's mm. been good to be back. Who has better beaches, West Coast or Wilmington? <laughs> Uh, well, Wilmington for sure, because yeah. you know when you put your foot in the water in the West Coast, first off, the movies are lying to you. The water is freezing cold. <laughs> right. There might as well be an orca there that could eat you. And like, no, right. give me Wrightsville Beach. Wrightsville Beach is so great. So from Berkeley, talk to us about your career, because you are in your mid-30s, and you have had quite a career thus far. So tell us about your journey through life. 
Is it mid? I think it's late. No. Um, uh, (laughs) So, um, you know, I have been so lucky. First off, just backing up, I'm a first generation college student. You know, I have been credited, you know, with a bunch of people who have made investments in me as a person throughout my life and my career, starting with my parents who told me I had no other option but to go to college. I think their fervor and hard work pushed me in ways that, you know, are kind of maybe classic firstborn behaviors. Mm -hmm. Um, So when I ended up in DC, uh, you know, I, I got this thing called the Presidential Management Fellowship and you know, I had been working in healthcare, working in the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. And this fellowship gives you the opportunity to really experience government in a different way. And I thought, well, if you're going to work for any company, go to where the headquarters is. So I went to D.C. And, uh, and part of what I was doing in healthcare at the time was really trying to do practice support. How do we make um, uh, practices work better? How do we give doctors decision support tools and vari- various things that they need? And that was the implementation of electronic health records and meaningful use and HIE and all these other health policy issues. So I did this pivot to more broad operational excellence. How do we improve things? How do we improve the way government works? And that's really where I got engaged at the Treasury Department. And I popped around. I was at the White House for a bit doing health policy work more broadly and tax policy and student loans and all kinds of other things. Um, But it was all with this vein of how do we improve how things work? Because I think if there's one foundational element to me is a person and what I believe in my profession is that the best policy lives or dies by implementation. Mm -hmm. And if we can't get it right where the rubber meets the road, then it's not right. You can design, you can understand all the issues and equities and things that people want, but unless, you know, when the rubber meets the road, if it doesn't work, didn't matter. And so, um, you know, from the White House and Treasury, uh, you know, had the great opportunity to be <clears throat> appointed the Assistant Secretary for Management. That's like the COO, CFO for the department. Uh, you know, did everything from helped print money to, you know, fun stuff at taxes and financial crime stuff. And, um, you know, all about how to make that better. Uh, also had the opportunity to be the only political holdover at the Treasury Department. So. Yeah lived through two different administrations. And what I found was that regardless of your political viewpoints, getting stuff done and making things work better is a bipartisan opportunity. Mm-hmm. And so all that kind of comes full circle. It's about four and a half years ago when I had the opportunity to come back to North Carolina to work at DHHS, which is where we started. You know, it's a very large, complex, $26 billion, 18,000 staff organization. So making it work better is what I'm all about. You're in the Obama administration. You're a holdover into the Trump administration. We know there are vast differences in their leadership and their policies. Do you really feel like, boom, on January 23rd of 2016 or 17, there was like you felt a light switch go off or, or is it something that just doesn't permeate down? Yeah. Well, let me back up maybe and tell a funny story you may enjoy. Okay. So I was um, packing up my office the Thursday before inauguration and Sean Spicer went on CNN and said, in order to ensure a smooth transition, we're going to keep 50 Obama appointees on. And he named 10 of them. And I was one of them. Wow. And that's how I found out. So I started unpacking the boxes, putting things back on the walls. Um, and, you know, I, I think something that people don't realize is that it's, it's very common. I mean, you know, I believe that Obama kept about 200 Bush appointees on when that happened. So maintaining that transition, and that continuity is important. I think for my role at the time, I was over cybersecurity at the department, which was a big concern for the stability of the financial system. 
we had a lot of big operational projects underway. It was important that those things worked. I think what was um, great about Treasury is that a lot of the senior team that came in, frankly, approached a lot of the economic things that we were doing in a very similar way. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was in a position that was reporting directly to Secretary Mnuchin. I had I was working with the team, the senior team, every day. So to your question about how it felt, I mean, it was it was you know front seat, you mm-hmm. know, and so you definitely felt the difference in policy approaches. Um, but a lot of the things that you know, my team was doing around operational things that didn't necessarily percolate down to them. Mm-hmm. So how did we get you back to North Carolina? Well, you know, when I interviewed for the job here, I told I told Mandy, whatever happens, just don't tell my mother I was here and I didn't visit her. <laughs> and uh, she, uh, she was definitely, the, you know. And did I, she know your mom? <laughs> <laughs> it would have. <laughs> no. Um, I, uh, I had been at the Department of the Treasury at this point uh, in my role as the Assistant Secretary longer than most of my predecessors. I was I was ready for a transition. Right. You know, I, at that point, my partner had taken a job in New York because after the administration, we thought there was some chance we would end up there. Um, he ended up getting a job and decided to take it, so we're kind of living this by city life. Mm-hmm. And, <clears throat> you know, it, maybe it was serendipitous, but... Uh, person who worked for Mandy, who was the chief deputy at the time, a woman named Kristen Link Young, uh, just brilliant human being. She and I had worked together in DC sometime before we got connected. They were looking for people to come here and it was just a little bit serendipitous. So really happy to come back. So to back up a little bit, you have, if we were playing government buzzword bingo, I think you've hit at least a couple of them. We heard you've worked on student loans, taxes, Medicaid. We heard all of those words. Tell me about when you decided you wanted to work in government and why. Well, I really think it goes back to that first job when I was working in behavioral health in Western North Carolina. You know, this was not too long after North Carolina had um, really shifted the way mental health care services are delivered. You know, Mm -hmm. folks remember that what used to be a community mental health system was really financialized into this uh, payer system and this managed care system came after that. And a lot of providers who were really used to working in state roles in community mental health centers were hanging up their shingles and starting businesses. And I got pulled into that to help run operations for that. But it was so nascent and mm-hmm. things were still not working. And we know, look, mental health and poverty are co-occurring. Right. You know, people with severe mental illness um, and people with untreated mental illness that eventually come severe or substance use disorder, it's really hard to maintain work. It's really hard to have health care without work. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, these systems really sit at the fringe. And so there's no way to make them work without substantial investment and structure from the government. Mm-hmm. And so it was in that role that I started getting engaged with the legislature, talking about the issues that needed to happen. I saw the importance of their work, the impact of that work, and, and, and I got really interested in it. I, I think the other part of it is that I just like solving problems, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Government has the best problems to solve. Mm-hmm. I think we saw that in, in in COVID. You know, I think mm-hmm. three days before the first viruses kind of landed in the in the shores, most people were like, huh, "Government," <laughs> and uh, and then all of a sudden, you know, everybody in the world wanted to know how I was going to help them. Yeah, and uh, and so I think being able to to fight those problems, tackle those things, was fascinating to me. And and frankly, really hard. But when you get it done, man, it's thrilling. 
And how did you get into that original job in behavioral health? Well, uh, it was actually a professor of mine uh, at Brevard College, you know, uh, connection through her, you know, small town, big fish, small school, that sort of stuff. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it led on to that. You have to get the General Assembly to have a certain amount of buy-in on certain policy issues. Can you talk about the politics of your job and dealing with the General Assembly? Yeah. You know, I am so lucky to have great relationships with so many folks over there. Um, and, you know, and, and frankly, it's nice that because I've been at the department for more than four years working on a number of issues, sometimes things way below the fold, you, know, you, you build a history of being able to solve some problems and get stuff done. What, what I have found in working with folks is that we often agree on that there is a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we often agree on what we want the outcome to be. It's the stuff in the middle that's hard, right? Mm-hmm. It's the, and you all know this, but you know, how do you define the problem? And then what is the right way to tackle that defined problem to fix it, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, civil dialogue, discourse, using data where we can to try to drive through those things is what's been fun. So Senator Bergen, mm-hmm. he's very close friend and we started we really connected initially over mental health you know he has a passion for it for helping people Um, you know my background we just talked about it and so being able to tackle through and and, you know look at the last budget the strides that we have been able to make the investments in mental health and a number of other things the conversations that we're having now about children I mean these issues transcend a lot of things so I think that's where health and human services is really lucky Mm -hmm. you know in the sense that we get to deal with a lot of things that everybody cares about. It's just a matter of getting through it. How does a political appointee take the politics out of his or her job when dealing with uh, a general assembly of the other party? There are always kind of like politicized issues that get kind of supercharged Mm -hmm. and they often take up 80% of the noise, right? I just try not to spend time on them. Okay. You know, I, I I think that it's the 80-20 rule, right? It's the it's the 80% of the stuff that really matters that only takes up 20% of the airtime. That's what we got to do. And, uh, and I hope that, uh, you know, we've been able to build and maintain the right relationships with folks at the General Assembly to understand that in the end, I'm interested in implementing things that matter for North Carolina. I, I I grew up here. My parents live here. My grandmother's in an adult care home. My brother lives down the road in Cedar Grove. Like I have a vested interest in the future of North Carolina. You know, th- actually, this month is is aging month. You know, I want to make sure that the infrastructure on aging works for me, and so mm-hmm. I am interested in those sorts of things. Um, so I, I think that it goes back to what motivates you and what drives you, um, and how to do that. I, I don't get jazzed off of winning. I get jazzed off solving problems. So in the last couple of years, I think people probably know you because we've seen you on TV and people... Yes, I cut my hair. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) This is not a video, so just know (laughs) he's telling the truth. Um, So when people are thinking of DHHS right now, they're thinking of COVID, but you have all these other issues that you're talking about. Can you name like two or three things that maybe people don't know DHHS does or works on that are maybe passions of yours or something people should know about? Sure. Let me just name our three big priorities right now. You know, as, and as we think about a strong and robust recovery and we think about, and this is something you're thinking about my background in, in 
finance and various other things, you know, I'm looking for opportunities where we can make strategic investments where our dollars go much further than they would go anywhere else. And thinking about the moment we're in and that concept of investment, there's three big areas. Area one, behavioral health. You know, and you could talk to any single person, my counterparts across the country and folks in the legislature, and I think you'd consistently hear the importance of mental health. We've had a collective trauma. We've got a lot of folks that are really struggling, especially young people, making investments for them. And if we don't now, and what we know is that if you have a mental unmanaged mental health issue, managing your diabetes costs 30% more right? The interaction of whole person health is critical. It's a smart investment to focus on mental health. Second big bucket, children and families, you know, following through from mental health. We know that kids have particularly experienced, uh, you know, this trauma in a different way. We have to serve them. I'm excited. The governor's budget, we have a very ambitious child action plan to try to wrap services around kids in a different way. But we know to have healthy kids, we have to have healthy families. This is actually one of my favorite examples in this bucket, which is, you know, right now we operate a series of different programs that support kids and families, including SNAP and WIC, which are big food programs. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't tell you who's in one program and not the other. We mm-hmm. have a lot of really bad legacy data issues, and, the, and there's been a lot of interest in new and uh, you know sexy programs that we're trying to build around serving people, and that's great. We want to do that thing, but I also want to make sure our core programs that have you know million people in them for making sure that kids have healthy food, we understand who's in what and how and how do we serve them better. The third bucket is, uh, and this is a little bit of shift, I think surprises people when I say this, is I'm really focused on making sure we have a strong and inclusive workforce in North Carolina mm-hmm. for a couple reasons. One, we know that work and health go hand in hand, and now more than ever, and we have the tightest labor market in a generation. We have employers that are hungry for a competitive and productive workforce. You know, I want to convince them that the data is clear, that investing in their health is what matters. They saw it play out in COVID. Um, at the same time, we know that there's a lot of evidence base behind um, giving someone a job helps their health, right? Chronic disease, disabilities, right? We have people with substance use disorder who are systematically left out of the employment market. What a great time to help employers hire the people who are going to get healthier. And last but certainly not least in this bucket is a healthcare workforce. I mean, our healthcare workforce, everybody knows a nurse or a doctor or a CNA or somebody who's been putting their life on the line for the last two and a half years. And this workforce has been on borrowed time for a long time. Oh, yeah. And we have got to invest back in them. So you succeeded Secretary Mandy Cohen. There was some skepticism when she was first hired, and then the General Assembly seemed to really warm up to her. She's kind of a tough act to follow, right? Yeah. Yeah, I hear often, you know, that she has big shoes to fill, and I can promise you my feet are bigger than hers. <laughs> uh, no, in all seriousness, you know, uh, you will find few people uh-huh. in the world that are two things, and she is. One so incredibly dedicated to people. You know, I think she feels personal responsibility for every loss of life, mm. for every hurt human. I mean, just a total sense of ownership. And two, she's made of that stuff where the harder you press on it, the harder it gets. Mm. I mean, she is just formidable mm. in every way. And so it's been my great pleasure to work with her and to learn from her. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also like to emphasize the fact that, uh, you know, it probably takes, you know, I think our core COVID team was about 300 strong, mm. you know, and she was out front. 
and that's a particular load. But I want to also honor the, the you know, countless doctors and lawyers and communications professionals and data folks and technology folks and folks on the ground knocking on doors to get people connected, all kinds. I mean, just a huge team. And actually, when you look at that team of people and you look at similar teams across other states, thing that strikes me is that North Carolina has most of those people still in the same seats. Wow. Like we have been able to maintain a dedicated group of leaders ranging from our public health team to our Medicaid team beyond who have worked on this issue. And we still meet multiple times a week talking about COVID. And wow. so, you know, it takes a village, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a huge team of people to get this stuff done. And, uh, and that's a credit to both Mandy's leadership, but I, I have to also really give a lot of the credit to the amazing people who are dedicated public servants. So we've talked a lot about the job, about DHHS, and how you got there, but we haven't talked a lot about you. Who are you? And <laughs> <laughs> Aside from the face we've all seen on TV. And all that hair. <laughs> <laughs> you can tell he's from Wilmington. <laughs> I'm sure people say that to you. But what do people need to know about you? How would you describe yourself and what drives you? Problem solving is a big thing for me, mm-hmm. you know. Well, actually, no, let me back up. Relationships, I think, is number one for me. You know, I care a lot about people, um, and uh, I have a very strong sense of empathy. I feel like, you know, my life is made better because of a lot of people doing a lot of stuff for me and helping me out, and, and I want to try to pay that back and pay that forward in a way that I can. Um, you know, I love my dog. I think, you know, he, during my swearing in ceremony, I was supposed to bring my family. So I brought my dog with me, (laughs) (laughs) my partner too. He came too. Uh, and so, you know, I I don't know. I'm a, I think I'm very focused on work. I work a lot, but also care a lot about balance. And I think the things that drive me are, are helping people. And, and I think in the health and human services space is really perfect for me. I just feel like this is a 24-7 job. So what do you do to relax? Do you hit the beach a lot or make it back to Wilmington? Or, or do you go to you know the mountains where you went to college? What, what do you do to downtime? Well, uh, you know, first off, I think it is, I believe wholeheartedly in what the airlines say, which is that you have to put your oxygen mask on before assisting others. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and this has actually been something that I've really worked to lead and instill in the team. I mean, when you've got type A++ public servants like we have at the Department of Health and Human Services, they don't know when to stop. And rest is so important. And so, you know, we do a couple things. One, I've been very intentional about structuring that we, we really try to set limits on when emails stop and when emails start and when meetings stop and when meetings start. And we try to minimize unnecessary work on the weekends and a variety of other things. I think those structures from a work perspective have been important for me as the leader to both showcase and do those things but um but then what do i do uh well i read a lot mm-hmm. and that's a big forcing function for me to get off the screen which i think is really mm-hmm. healthy for all of us and then second we hike a lot my partner and i try to you know hit a new hike every weekend and various other things Prob- can i stop you is Please. your partner still in new york Oh, no, 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 no. Okay, he, I was going to say, that would be uh, really difficult. No, no, no. He, he, he moved down here like two months after I did. Okay, so, okay. <laughs> yeah, no, it was... Right. Sometimes he maybe he wishes. No. The, um, uh, we tend to go to the mountains, I think, more than the beach. Okay. 
So I think because of the hiking and, you know, like the water fills and the lake and stuff, you know, I, I, I burn very easily. Mm -hmm. I don't need to be on the beach. Okay. Is your partner in policy work? What kind of work does he do? He's an attorney, attorney. which means he wins the fights. <laughs> uh, and uh, he actually works for the federal government. Okay. So, and he's been working for them since he's moved down here. What is something North Carolinians should start doing today? And what is something they should stop doing today for all of our mental health? Great question. So start doing today. Let me tell you about a little acronym we came up with in the middle of Is it COVID. the three W's? No, it's not. <laughs> Wash your hands. <laughs> when you said three buckets of work, I was like, here they come. No, no. Scoop. Okay. Scoop. So uh, stay connected to friends and family. Okay. Have compassion for yourself. You know, give yourself a break. Um, observe your use of substances right now. You know, it's important to think about your substance use and what that means and uh, be careful. Um, know that it's okay to ask for help. And, you know, it's actually very empowering and, you know, it can be powerful. And then last but not least, the P stands for, you know, get physical, you know, move, move around, get your endorphins moving, you know, th- those sorts of things. Being intentional every day, one thing every day, thinking about what have I done on the scoop kind of spectrum is, is an evidence-based model for helping you feel better. And, and if promise, if you, Take that on for the next few weeks. Uh, send me an email. I'm sure you'll be feeling better. Uh, one thing to stop is, uh, you know, we really have to stop um, thinking less about people with mental health problems. And that's hard. You know, stigma has been uh, a particular challenge. You know, when you see folks that maybe are living in a slightly different reality than you are, uh, folks that are having really rough time and because of it experiencing homelessness uh, or having other problems, it can be really scary. It can be scary to know how to engage. It can be scary on what to do. Um, But the thing we have to fight constantly is stigmatizing that person. You know, that person is, see them as someone who has cancer. See them someone who is struggling with diabetes, with a really bad chronic illness, and see if you can try to evoke a sense of empathy as opposed to evoking a sense of fear. So you're 36 years old. You've had this really incredible career already. And when you were appointed, the headline was that you were going to be the first openly gay secretary in the state of North Carolina. Can you talk about what that means to you and to the legacy that you're setting for other North Carolinians? You know, I think that to do any job well, but in particular to do one in public service, you got to bring your whole self to the job, right? You got to be in it because if you just segment off, this is my work self and this is my non-work self, like, you know, I don't think it's very healthy. And so when I come to this job, you know, I bring first-generation college student. I bring, you know, a kid who grew up in North Carolina without health insurance. Mm-hmm. I bring a kid who got all of his dental work because he had free stu- you know, school lunch. Um, I bring person who went to the top public policy school, who worked in D.C. and the White House. All those things and those experiences um, and the learnings that I've had from other people continue to inform who I am. But, you know, being gay is just one piece of that broader puzzle, my whole self in, in understanding how things impact. And frankly, bringing that perspective is also why, you know, you may have seen recently, I sent a letter to the FDA really pushing them to change their blood donation policies mm-hmm. because it just doesn't make sense. I want North Carolina to have a safe 
blood supply and I want them to have all the, it breaks my heart to think that someone could be, you know, have cancer or be getting treatment and the thing that could kill them when they couldn't get access to blood. And Mm -hmm. when we were running out of blood, the fact that we have whole groups of people that are just left out of blood donation for no scientific reason, um, you know, we got to change that. And so uh, I think those perspectives and, and to go further, you know, obviously I don't have every experience that counts or every background that counts. Uh, and so that's why we've tried to build a team that really represents the wholeness of what North Carolina is. So, Mr. Secretary, we are living in a very divided time politically, and I'm sure you see this play out in state politics, especially on a lot of healthcare issues. If you had a magic wand, and you could change one thing in our politics, what would it be? You know, I on I <laughs> so partly I wish all social media would go away. Yeah. <laughs> if I had yeah. one magic wand, I mean, I believe that um, the the platform of social media that has become so integral to how we communicate and reach. And I won't do like I mean, we probably drove more people towards vaccinations through our TikTok influencers <laughs> than many other things. I mean, I think it's a it's a nature of what it is. But there's actually been some really interesting research around the power of the retweet and the like button and the various things that gamifying communication that really strips out actual communication Mm -hmm. and if i know anything about how to get stuff done it's about you have got to work with people you've got to listen to seek to understand and nothing on social media does that and so you know if i had a magic wand and could throw us back into the social media dark ages Mm -hmm. i would love that and i think that that communication shift would help establish right relations um, in our politics and a number of other things in our kind of social discourse i think that would be important yeah i think you're right well, Secretary, Code, I'll tweet about it later. Yeah. <laughs> Retweet. <laughs> Secretary Cody Kinsley, we appreciate everything you do for North Carolina, our health, our mental health. You certainly know how to do politics better. Thank you for being on the podcast today. Thank you, guys. It's been great to be here. The Do Politics Better podcast is sponsored by the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association. Beer and wine distributors in North Carolina are family-owned companies that directly employ more than 5,600 men and women across the state. The North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association works with the General Assembly to develop alcohol policies that ensure fairness in a competitive marketplace and promote responsible behavior. Visit the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association at ncbeerwine.com for more information. Secretary Kinsley was really intentional about the way that he does his work. And I think that has come through in his relationships with legislators who are about to confirm him as the HHS secretary. Yeah, we think it's going to be June 1st. He'll have his hearing and then confirmation. So a timely interview for folks who are following. We're kind of reporters. (laughs) (laughs) We're not, are we? <laughs> no. <laughs> so we got a call last week from a Democratic senator. He's like, you didn't question Stephen B. Wiley on some of those things he was saying about the election. This is a wild impression that doesn't sound like anybody. Well, I want to throw people off. Okay. That's <laughs> <laughs> like... I was like, Senator, it's not going to be a good year for, de- for Democrats. He's like, but you should have pushed back on him. I'm like, I don't know. But anyway, if, if anyone out there, I want to say this. One, we are not reporters. We're just lowly lobbyists yeah. that have a podcast. You remember that one time that 
I asked someone to confirm a rumor and then I said, too bad. I already said it. And he, he was like, who did you side? I was like, I don't need to side anybody. We're not reporters. Yeah, we're just lobbyists. But I guarantee you this, we do have the facts and we do have the news. But here's my open invitation. We will invite on anyone to the Do Politics Better podcast that wants to rebut Stephen B. Wiley and say that it's going to be a banner year for the Democratic Party because I don't think it's going to be a banner year for the Democratic Party, but we would love to hear those facts. So you're welcome to come on. Tweet Tweet of of the the week. week. This week's Tweet of the Week, again, is from Don Bivon, and she's at Don Bivon. And her tweet is, the House is known for sending the Senate bill after bill after bill about all kinds of things. And the Senate being like, LOL, nah. But this time, it's the reverse. And then there's a Hamilton gift that says it must be nice. You know, the thing about the Senate, though, when they send over bills, they don't just send over little bills. They send over landmark legislation that's just going to change the topography of politics, Medicaid expansion. Speaking of landmark bills that the Senate's doing, next week in rules, we're going to see... Medical marijuana, right? It's back. So we're recording the podcast late Thursday afternoon because it's been that kind of week and we get a notice on Twitter that we're hearing the bill in what committee? Rules. In rules? So it's just one step away from the Senate floor. Well, it went to many committees. Gosh, it was so hard. to. It went to committees and just... Back to the same committees. Yeah, yeah. Well, good for Senator Rabin. Looks like we're pushing this bill through. It's going over to the House. We have no interest in this bill whatsoever. It'll be fun theater to see this bill move. That is the thing about the General Assembly. Every day is fun theater, is it not? Yeah, we go to a committee just to watch the fireworks sometimes. Do we have a client necessarily following this bill? No, we're just there to see the action. (laughs) Sorry, we're here because we're serious reporters. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That is so correct. Are you exhausted this week? Yeah, I'm running on fumes. You know how when you first start school that first week after, you know, summer break, you're used to kind of maybe sleeping in, eating when you want to eat. You're just exhausted. That's how I feel this week. It has been so hard to just keep up with everything. I know we'll get in the rhythm of it. I have to admit to you that I was so out of it this morning. I walked into a tree. <laughs> Did you really? Yeah. Where, where were and you? And someone saw me. <laughs> were you on your morning walk? And then I paid her off. <laughs> Did you? you I get, was like, you saw nothing. You gave her an NDA? Yeah. What are you doing this weekend? I don't have any plans. I, I am thinking about walking to the library, though. Wow, you're living big. I know. Yeah, you just need like five cats and don't ten say, ferns. Why are you doing this? Because you're walking to the library. You need to come back and water your ferns. Sorry, I can read and you can't. Feed your cats and walk to the library. What are you doing, Mr. Popular? <laughs> I'm going to the beach. And then Sunday, I'm driving to Charlotte to go to the race. We have a client who's also a sponsor of the podcast, the North Carolina Travel Industry Association. 
in conjunction with the Cabarrus County Convention and Visitors Bureau and Senator Paul Newton are hosting a reception at the race Sunday. So I'm going to that. Then I'm going back to the beach and then I'll come back late Monday night to Raleigh. It's a fun week. And it's, you know what else it is this weekend? It's Memorial Day weekend, which means it's the kickoff of summer. Oh, I thought you were going to say you were able to wear that ugly seersucker suit that you have. Yeah, you get to wear the seersucker suit. I'd rather you not. It's the kickoff of summer. And of course, it's a somber holiday. It's a day to memorialize those who died in military service to our country. I will say that I was walking from the General Assembly to our office today, and I absolutely love every year that the old Capitol puts up all the flags around the Capitol grounds, and it is so beautiful. And so if you have time and you're in Raleigh, you should go see that. It looks great. It does. The old Capitol is a great place to visit. Whatever you're doing this weekend to celebrate, enjoy some time off, a Monday away. Remember the reason for Memorial Day and whatever you're doing in the week to come. We will talk to you next week. But in the meantime, please remember to do politics better.